This is Fearless Rebel Radio, a podcast about body positivity, self-worth, anti-dieting, and feminism. I am your host, Summer Inanin, a professionally trained coach specializing in body image, self-worth, and confidence, and the best-selling author of Body Image Remix. If you're ready to break free of societal standards and stop living behind the number on your scale, then you have come to the right place. Welcome to the show. This is episode 77 of Fearless Rebel Radio, and I am interviewing Virgie Tovar about diet culture, the influence of internalized sexism on self-worth, and so much more. So much more. It's a good one. You can find all of the links and resources mentioned in this podcast at summerinandin.com forward slash 77. That's 77. Before we begin, I have two quick announcements. First, if you haven't already done so, I would greatly appreciate it if you went to iTunes to leave a review for this show. Leaving a review helps others to find this podcast and the information you are learning here. In other words, you are contributing to the revolution to end diet culture by leaving a review. You can do that by heading to iTunes, searching for Fearless Rebel Radio, then clicking Ratings and Reviews and click to leave a review or simply give it a rating. Second, if you haven't already done so, get the free 10-day body confidence makeover at summerinandin.com forward slash freebies with 10 steps to take right now to feel better in your body. If you can't spell in and in, just go to thebodyimagecoach.com and you'll find all of these things there. Today's guest is Virgie Tovar. Virgie is an author, activist, and one of the nation's leading experts and lecturers on fat discrimination and body image. She is the founder of Babe Camp, a four-week online course designed to help those who are ready to break up with diet culture, and started the hashtag campaign, Lose Hate, Not Wait. Tovar edited the groundbreaking anthology Hot and Heavy, Fierce Fat Girls on Life, Love, and Fashion, and has been featured by the New York Times, MTV, Al Jazeera, NPR, Yahoo Health, and Tech Insider. I had such an incredible chat with this woman. Check it out. Welcome, Virgie, to the show. I am so happy to have you here. Thank you. I said to you earlier that I've been meaning to reach out to you forever, but because of my own inferiority complex, I waited years to actually touch base and have <laughs> you on this show. But I feel like it's going to be that much better now because I am that much more confident in my beliefs and the questions that I want to ask you. Yes, Brad. <laughs> so before we get started, I would love to know how you got into this work. Oh my gosh, it's such a long, convoluted story. I mean, I feel like in a lot of ways, the work came to me from the day I was born, right? Like, because I think, you know, I was born into a fat family. I was a fat baby. Um, I had the benefit of growing up in a home where there was not fat shaming um, or dieting. I think, like, honestly, my mother and grandmother always dieted, but they really treated me like I was the center of the universe, like a, like a perfect little queen. Um, and so I was sheltered in a lot of ways from the sort of stultifying reality of fat phobia in our culture for a few years growing up. And then I was kind of introduced to it in childhood when I got into elementary school. So, um, so that's kind of, you know, I feel like I was introduced to fat phobia at around age five. Um, the education came primarily at the hands of boys my age and it really um, attacked like the education I received in fat shaming really attacked my gender, my humanity, like everything that kind of made up who I was, was fundamentally undercut by this education that I got um, as a girl, you know? And so I end up kind of dieting for a really long time, having periods of starvation that I consider totally normal parts of dieting and totally normal parts of my life as a fat person. Um, and I go to college, I end up uh, doing undergraduate at sort of a liberal university and I end up falling in with these like really incredible militant feminists who are like exactly what the culture thinks of when you think of like a militant feminist, they were all of those things. And it was amazing. Um, so it was like, in a lot of ways, you know, I, I attribute feminism, I like, 
I see feminism as having saved my life um, because I just grew up being taught that my entire life was meant to be in pursuit of male approval um, and that my life was essentially, you know, going from my parents' home to my husband's home. That's how I saw my life. Uh, sort of playing out like many women. And, you know, they kind of told me, you know, did you know that you get to live life on your own, on your own terms? Um, they introduced me to the concept of body image. I was still dieting at the time, but these were really radical concepts to me. And that education really began to germinate. And I ended up going to graduate school, um, studying sexuality, but I was really interested in, in, in researching fat women. And so I started doing research on that when I started interviewing them. You know, I had a sort of small sample size and I would go in and do like these two hour long biographical interviews about their entire life and how their size had affected their gender and their sexuality. Um, and it was so, 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 so incredible um, to kind of see the points of resonance, to see the ways that our lives were similar and, and the ways that, that our lives diverged. But, um, but in the research, it was, it was fascinating, right? Because like, you know, once I started doing it, I went down the rabbit hole of other people who were doing similar research, um, and then they would introduce me to activists, and then the activists would introduce me to their friends, then their friends would invite me to events, and so um, it just became kind of this um, this unraveling of an education I was not expecting to receive, uh, and so I met this group of women, most of whom were queer women, like lesbians, some of them were lesbian identified, um, but who were doing this like amazing thing where they were fat and they were living their life completely shamelessly and they were wearing amazing outfits and being divas and, you know, having lots of sex and dating who they wanted and just kind of like, and, and really calling out the culture for what it was doing to fat people. And that experience like really affected me, like affected me to the core, you know? And so I was really interested in, um, I wanted to introduce the world to these, to these women because they had so thoroughly inspired me. And so I had the idea to write an, to edit an anthology where I asked a bunch of women to write about their story, about how they went from, um, a fat person in this culture who was taught to hate themselves to someone who was, you know, like wearing cat eye sunglasses and like tiny mini skirts and just walking around and taking up space. And so there ended up being 30 women in the book. Uh, so like I ended up getting a contract to do it right out of graduate school. Bay Area, and it became um, Hot and Heavy, Fierce Fat Girls on Life, Love, and Fashion, which is like the book title. There's 30 essays in it, um, each written about this story of like finding body love in a culture that teaches you to hate your body. And there's so many, I mean, the stories are come from all over the place. Like the very first chapter in the book um, was a story that written by a friend of mine. Now she's a friend, but, um, but, you know, when I first met her, I sort of asked her, you know, like, how did you get to this place? Like, I remember we were sitting at a conference um, that, at a fat positive conference and we were sitting poolside and you know, we're both wearing like our bathing suits. And I'm just kind of asking her how she got here. How did you get here? sitting poolside with me in your like hot babe, you know, swimming suit as a fat person. Right. And yeah. And she, um, and she told me about being, you know, in her youth, she got into a horrible car accident and it was an older car that she was driving and the car was completely totaled. They had to kind of like helicopter her out of the car with the jaws of life. Um, and she ends up getting to the hospital and she's got all these bruises, but she's got absolutely no internal damage. And the doctor sort of comes in and says, if you hadn't been fat, you'd be dead right now. Wow. Um, and so it was actually like her fatness that was the, the cushion kind of that like protected her, her internal organs. And so she's like now living, you know, and so she was like, after that moment, it was very difficult to ever really hate my body ever again, because my fatness saved my life. And 
you know, that's like the opening to the book, right? Because I just think like it was so powerful. It just gives me chills every time I tell that story. But, you know, so like stories like that were the ones that I was encountering over and over again. And then kind of the book um, led to opportunities in lecturing. Um, I love doing lectures. I do a lot of lectures at universities. Um, one of the things that I don't love about it is how um, insular the community is and like how, I mean, the truth is, right, like, undergraduates um, are a very sort of um, specific subset of the population. Uh, they get a lot of opportunities to be introduced to political ideas that are radical. And I love that. The thing I don't like is that once undergraduate ends, if you don't get that education, A, if you don't end up going to college, or B, if you don't get that education in college, you pretty much have almost no opportunity to get it ever again in any kind of public setting. And so I was really interested in kind of democratizing my own feminist education and kind of like kind of inviting people into the experience that I had outside of the university setting. And that's how Babe Camp kind of arose. It's really inspired by uh, the my early political education as a 20, 21-year-old woman. Um, Babe Camp really comes out of that. And so that's kind of what I'm doing. So now I like, you know, I write books, I have two columns, I lecture a lot. Um, I do uh, these retreats, like I just went to Jamaica in November with 10 women. Um, and so that's kind of my life. And that's kind of, uh, kind of a little bit how it unfolded. <laughs> that's amazing. And you've become one of those role models, you know, the people that influenced you, you're having that influence on thousands of other women. And I think that social media is a lot has a lot to do with your ability to take it outside of just the undergraduate um, sphere as well. Yeah, thank you. I really thank you for that. Because for me, I've learned so much from you and from your writings and from and from your work. I mean, that's been a huge part of my own education on feminism and fat acceptance and sexism and and all of that stuff and looking at it from that cultural and social justice and political perspective. So you are someone that I have so much gratitude for in that you've taught me so much because I did not learn this from anybody else, <laughs> especially growing up. Oh, and, um, you yeah. know, ha having gone to business school, it certainly wasn't in my agenda or my curriculum. Right. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think, um, yeah, I think uh, it's, it's interesting because I find that um, learning about this, the justice element, kind of like the social, the socio-historical reality of what dieting and diet culture really are, um, really is the foundation for having lifelong change around this issue. Um, and, and I think that it, it was so powerful. I'm somebody who very much has to be able to wrap my head around something theoretically in order for it to really take hold in my life in any substantive way. And I know not everybody works that way, but that's kind of like the, that's the position from which I approach all my work, you know? Yeah. And that's been something that's been uh, extremely helpful for me is to look at it from the ideological perspectives. Um, because I think it actually gives us more power and responsibility instead of mm -hmm. instead of redirecting it back onto ourselves. It's not just an us mm -hmm. issue. It's yeah. a you know, it's it's a it's a complete cultural issue. And I think that gives us more, more ownership to take change. And I yeah. want to get into that further with you. But one of the things just for people who are maybe a little bit newer to this before we completely blow their minds is I would <laughs> love you to elaborate on the relationship between weight loss culture and social oppressions. Yeah, um, so there is a long history of the connection between uh, food and the regulation of food and um, and class, race, uh, gender, um, some other things. Those are kind of the primary ones for, for me, at least in the work that I do. Um, and so, like, if you look back at kind of the history of diet culture, um, dieting 
as we know it, kind of started about 200 years ago. Um, and this guy named Sylvester Graham, who invented the graham cracker, which I will, you know, I'll, I'll get into why he, he actually invented it as part of a, of a dieting uh, plan. Um, he had the, he started this movement called the Dietary Reform Movement. And Sylvester Graham was a reverend, um, and he was a very religious man. He was sort of a, like, he was a sex phobe, right? Like, he hated masturbation. He would go on these, like, four-hour lectures um, about, you know, these long lectures, and he'd he'd have them transcribed about, like, how bad masturbation was, and he had all these, like, you know, this, this whole, this, like, him and his cronies and his, like, comrades had these, like, um incredibly fascinating propaganda images about the deleterious effects of masturbation. Like they'd be like, here's a man before masturbation. He's like, look at him. He's a gentleman. He's got a starched collar. And then like (laughs) after masturbation and he's like aged, he looks like Frankenstein. He's like yellow. It's so amazing. Right. So, um, so I think what's so fascinating is I came to, I came to learn about the history of dieting, through my research in grad school as a sexu- as, a, as a student of human sexuality, so, so I think that that tells you something. I learned about the men who influenced how we deal with food culturally from learning about sex and the history of men trying to control sex in the United States. Um, so I just want like that to sink in for one second. <laughs> yes. So, Sylvester Graham is like, he's kind of a a fascinating character for people who study the history of sexuality. And it was fascinating to see that he was popping up when I was researching diet culture and the history of dieting. So anyway, Sylvester Graham, Reverend, hates masturbation, like literally is like, you should circumcise your children to the point that like arousal is painful for the rest of their lives. Like he was like, you know, if you have a daughter who's masturbating, you should just pour some pure carbolic acid on her clitoris. Like he was like really intense about sex. And so he started this food movement, uh, the dietary reform movement as a way in his mind, his followers believed, and he believed that through controlling food, we could control morality. This is the same premise of modern-day diet culture. Wow. Um, right now, diet culture is a transaction. You restrict your food, you exercise, and you lose weight, and you will get love, respect, visibility, success, right? Because thinness in our culture is equated with love, visibility, success, you know, respect, um, things that all people want, essentially. So, uh, so anyway, this is like the ideological background, right? And so his followers um, believed that if you ate delicious, spiced, or fatty, like rich foods, that you would have this out-of-control relationship to your sexuality. And if you ate bland, low-calorie, unleavened bread, like unleavened bread food that's very bland, um, that you could control your sexuality better. And so, um, yeah, he invented the graham cracker as part of this idea that we can control our sexuality when we eat flavorless food. So he was like, uh, he was called the prophet of bran bread. So he's kind of like the precursor to, you know, the wheat bread, the sprouted bread, that whole obsession with bread and all the interesting manifestations of bread. <laughs> like wow. he's kind of like the grandfather of the bread thing. Um, and so anyway, like, you know, he has a, he has a few other um, acolytes who are just like similarly, similar ideologically um, who are all really obsessed with the connection between food and morality. So, that kind of like, I think, sets the stage in a lot of ways for what we're seeing today. The way that diet culture manifests today is, is slightly differently, right? But like, um, one, it's so diet culture specifically and disproportionately affects women. So women are the disproportionate consumers of diet products and diet behaviors, including gastric bypass surgery. Um, so women are over, overrepresented in the consumers of diet products. Women are also overrepresented in people who are reporting dissatisfaction with their bodies. Um, so, I mean, the, the, the statistics are kind of complicated, right? Because I think there's more of a taboo around men discussing this. So I don't know. Um, I would take that with kind of a grain of salt. But, like, in terms of just the pure numbers, if you will, like the research that's been done, women have a more readily available script when asked 
are you dissatisfied or dissatisfied about your body? Um, so that's kind of like the specific ways in which sort of gender plays into it. Also, diet culture requires um, a shame mentality. You have to be ashamed of your body in order for you to, to sort of successfully diet. Um, and so that shame mentality is something that women specifically uh, that maps onto the already existing cultural education that women receive. Um, so interestingly, shame is kind of anger turned inward. Um, and so masculinity, there's a lot of room for men to feel anger. Um, there's not a lot of room for women to feel anger. So you end up seeing anger redirected in these specific ways. Um, so it's really clear to me that like almost all, if not all dieting behavior is kind of like, um, like self harm, right? It's essentially like, um, yeah, it's, it's like, I think that it's a manifestation that women are suffering, right? Like you don't starve yourself and refuse to eat and like do all these things for other people in order to get things from other people, like approval and stuff. If you don't already have a mentality that you're not good enough. Absolutely. And I think that's really, really important to recognize like the ways in which I kind of think of diet culture. I think of like our, our various cultural education components as like Legos, right? Because like, and so for example, you know, if you have the, uh, the, like the base Lego piece that all the other Legos can attach onto, it's easier and easier and easier to build on top of it, right? So like each, each component of cultural education maps onto or, or sort of snaps onto the one below it. And, and like the sort of, it, it it stacks up very, very quickly once you have that kind of base belief that you are someone who is not okay as you currently are and that you need to change um, in order to meet the approval of other people. So so that's interesting. The other the other thing I'm gonna speak briefly about um race and class. There's like really specific so so the way that we deal with um, fat people and the treatment of fatness is is very um, what we call coded. Like the language of fatness is how we as a culture talk about race and class anxieties now. It's taboo to talk overtly about uh, race, especially in like liberal bastions in the United States. And it's also a bit taboo to explicitly talk about class. Um, but we redirect those anxieties into other acceptable linguistic categories. And one of the acceptable linguistic categories is weight. We are, we, there is not a taboo um, of any, like there is not a notable taboo yet around really discussing people's body size and being very overtly disgusted or congratulatory. Um, so, what ends up happening is like this becomes a language, a way of communicating feelings about uh, race and class, because essentially um, what I find fascinating about the, his the history of body is that one thing that I've noticed, and this is not true. This is not like the whole story, but it's part of the story. Um, but like wealthy people throughout history have been preoccupied with not having the body of poor people, so in, in times when there's food scarcity and the poor person has a thin body, then a bigger body becomes uh, more desirable. And then the times when there's food surplus, now again, this is like food surplus is a historical anomaly. Like this is the first time in human history, really. Like we have this like food, food surplus, right. but when we have food surplus, all of a sudden food is readily available. The body of the poor person is a bigger body now. And so there's this premium placed on the smaller body. So it becomes like a way of sort of differentiating yourself um, due to class while also uh, sort of being able to, to stealthily pass as like a healthy compliant citizen, right? Um, and so that's, that's really fascinating to me as well. Um, so like a lot of times when people talk to me about especially like the race stuff, you know, they're like, well, there are all these food deserts. We understand there's food deserts where poor people of color live. And I'm like, yeah, that's true. And also it's important to recognize that there are wealthy people who are pathologically obsessed with not looking like those people. <laughs> so right. I think that there's like a few things happening. It's not just that poor people are quote unquote, not thriving 
it's also that we've got this like pathology among the wealthy that is invisibilized through the language of success and discipline. Um, so those are, those are so much, that's like not the whole story, but those are just some of the connections. So something that I'm taking away or hearing from this is looking at the standard of beauty and seeing it from a deeper level in that it's representative of all of these systems. So it's not just about female sexuality, but it's really right. about class and race and all of these all of these other things. Yes, for sure. Okay. I mean, what the, can I just share one quick thing? It's like, I love, um, there's this book called Fat, uh, The Cultural History of Obesity, I think it is. I don't love the word obesity, but it's in the title. It's by Sandra Gilman. He's a sociologist. And one of the things that he points out in the introduction of the book, which always just blew my mind when I read it, was he said, dieting is a way that women convey their understanding of their role in society and their willingness to accept that role. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's important to see dieting as a language as well, to see it as a way of communicating something. Um, and, and like when you get into like dieting is a, is a reality, it's like a logistical reality, food in, food out, right, calorie counting, you know, all these things, right? So there's a very physiological, biological reality and component to dieting, but there is a much larger symbolic reality to dieting that I think is far more like when you're looking into like the mechanisms of diet culture, um, looking at the symbolism of dieting and what it means to people um, is, is like so rich and there's so much there to kind of excavate. I'm going to link to that book in the show notes too. And every, all the other mm. links that you're mentioning at summerinandin.com forward slash 77. But on that topic, I think it's, it's speaking to the normalization of all of these dieting behaviors in that women are expected to um, talk about, oh, I shouldn't eat that or, and, right. and that, that gives them a sense of, of, of acceptance in our society. Yeah. Yes, Absolutely. Do you want to talk about some other examples about how diet culture is normalized? Um, yeah, I mean, like one of the things I often do when I'm doing a lecture is I'll ask people, raise your hand if you can imagine going one single day without hearing about calories, weight loss, food regulation. Usually only two people out of like 100 raise their hand. Um, I mean, the truth is, right, you cannot opt out of it in most people's cases. Um, One of the things that I found really fascinating when I started working with women more closely, like in babe camp, um, was that the domain they were having the most difficulty with was not their, like, romantic relationships, not their friendships, not their families, actually their workplace. Um, So what's fascinating is women still, for the most part, the workforce is still quite gender segregated. So there's, um, there's areas in which there's a lot, like a lot of men and a lot of women. Um, there's not as much of that sort of gender equality in the workplace. It's not as common, right? Like it's more common that it's like a heavily masculine or a heavily feminine workplace. Um, and e- even within departments that might, you might see that. So anyway, uh, because of that, you know, due to like all these interesting ways in which gender manifests in the workplace, um, a lot of women who are working in in an office environment or working with mostly other women. And because dieting and food regulation and food surveillance and body surveillance are such a big part of what it means to be a woman in our culture, that language is like saturates the workplace for women. Um, So what I found really interesting was like women were coming to me over and over and over again with like, can you give me advice about how to deal with my coworkers? And it it was, it was like, I mean, honestly, it's terrifying to hear some of the things that these women are, are experiencing that are totally normal in our culture. So for example, you know, I've had more than one woman tell me that they have a coworker, another woman coworker who plays, food manipulation games with the office. So for example, um, this is one example that I think is just like, it's like, I I have so much empathy for both the person who's experiencing it and also the person who's doing it because they're clearly suffering. But like there's, you know, this woman 
like every Monday or even every day would bring in this like enormous bag of candy or cookies and like set up a bowl or a plate on top of her desk and then dump everything from the bag onto the plate or bowl and then pressure people throughout the day to eat the food on her desk while narrating that she wasn't eating any. Um, so just kind of like this really weird uh, projecting behavior, like this kind of strange, like she's experiencing sort of the pseudo pleasure of eating by pressuring other people to eat. And then, but she's also emotionally benefiting in her mind from not eating it. Um, so it's like that kind of a level of like manipulation is something that's not unusual, you know, in our culture. So you know, that like, those are the examples that kind of come to mind for me. Um, but yeah, I think there's, it is completely embedded in the language, period. And then if you're a woman, it is, I mean, honestly, talking about food and dieting is considered a safe topic. Um, that's respectable. Um, so there's certain, you know, there's like five or I don't know what the number is, but there's like a handful of topics that are considered safe, quote unquote, for the workplace and other casual, like non-intimate environments. And unfortunately, food, dieting, how good or bad food is, um, are con is, is considered a safe topic. So it's something that kind of, I think, women mindlessly sort of um, unconsciously slip into all the time. And the truth is, you know, it seems, again, our culture uh, presents it as completely innocuous. The culture tells us this kind of behavior is harmless, if not good. Right. Um, and the truth is, it, it's not. It's neither of those things. It's incredibly harmful and it's absolutely not good. And I think that if we kind of begin to really check in and see how much food surveillance conversation is part of our everyday life, we really begin to see why women have such an intense pathology around food and their body size. Right. And so I'm curious to know what advice you give to these women who are asking you for help in this area, because I am insulated from it having, you know, left the corporate world years ago. But I mean, I was one of those women that was that was, you know, trying to get everybody to get on a diet challenge with me and, and all that other stuff, um, right. you know, because I was in my own disordered frame of mind. But I'd, I'd love to know what your advice is for women who are in a workplace where diet culture is rampant. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really complicated, right? Because I think what's really sad is it's, it's the gender. So it's essentially, it's the gender piece that's putting them in this environment in the first place. And then it's also sexism. It's sexism that, that has them in this all women environment. And then it's sexism that prevents them from setting boundaries with other women because they're worried about being socially ostracized. Right. It's like the worst, it's right? Like it's cycle. the worst. Yes. And so it's like, it's very delicate, right? I think what's really, what the reality is a lot of women do not feel comfortable setting clear boundaries and just dealing with whatever potential emotional or social repercussions there are, because this can potentially endanger their job and their income, right? So unfortunately, I mean, I wish, like, if, if it were just me being like, you know, if it were me, ideal world, just do you, um, I would say you need to set boundaries with that person like over and over. You just have, I mean, for me, it's like you need to have a script that you're prepared in order to deal with and, and extricate yourself from the exchange immediately. Um, I think that, um, and that's like ideal case scenario. Most women are not there, you know, and again, I think a lot of it is the reality that they know that if they say something, they're going to be cast as like high maintenance or mean or snobbish which is, which, you know, could potentially endanger their financial well-being. So I totally understand that. I think, unfortunately, um, what ends up happening that, it, it, you know, it, it's unfortunate in one way and then kind of, I think, um, kind of rad in another way. A lot of it ends up becoming about individuating, doing the work of detaching emotionally um, from the workplace and really, fostering an internal sense of safety that you build for yourself. Um, it's extraordinarily difficult, right? I think, but the right, like the, the reason that this, that diet talk affects women is because women are a, our, our self-confidence is undercut from like the beginning, you know, in childhood. And, and then on top of that, like we have all these sort of 
sophisticated social exchanges with other women and they're tied to our well-being emotionally, financially, etc. Um, but the truth is that diet talk really affects women because we have been taught to be codependent on other people's acceptance. Um, and that's like, that's a really sick cultural thing. Um, but you know, if we begin to kind of do the work and it's a ton of work, right? Like, and I, I hate giving women more work. I really do. Um, but I think in, in the it's kind of delicate situation, um, it really is about individuating, detaching, um, checking in with what it is about these conversations that's like setting you off and kind of extricating yourself in so far as you can and then um, with the rest of it just kind of working really hard on yeah detaching so it's like it's not perfect advice but that's the advice I've come up with I think it's a really difficult situation and as as you said I mean it's it's such a hard thing to process as an individual because as women we are we want to be likable you know like our 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 survival has depended on us being has depended on yes. us being likable yes. and you know to to take a stand and do something that is is different from the rest of the tribe is literally a threat like a psychological threat in our minds that's similar to yes. some kind of physical danger yes absolutely yeah so i think i i mean it's 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 tough and i'm i'm with you on taking an inside out approach in that building up your own sense of of worth and your own sense of confidence and um, requ- and setting boundaries and dealing with some of the ramifications of it so long as your, you know, your financial well-being is not put in, in jeopardy. Yeah, yeah. And so this, this leads into something that I really want to pick your brain about, which is the relationship between internalized fat phobia, internalized sexism, on the underlying belief that we are not good enough. So my my main area of work is is around body image and self-worth with women with and self-worth obviously mm-hmm. being this belief that we're good enough. And something I've been giving a lot of thought to lately is how internalized sexism fuels those feelings of inadequacy and also criticism and competition amongst women. So I would love to know your thoughts on this and, and yeah, if you could just kind of elaborate on that further. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So let's break down kind of the term. So like sexism is essentially the idea that women are inferior. I'm going to get more into that in a second. Um, inter- the internalization, when you, when we internalize sexism as in, and when we internalize any belief, it is when an idea becomes part of our worldview. It becomes incorporated into how we see the world. Um, so that's like essentially the internalization of sexism. Um, one of the things that I come up against really commonly is women say, you know, but I don't feel inferior. I'm, I, I don't feel inferior. And I'm like, okay, right. Okay, what what do you think inferiority feels like? Is kind of the pushback question. So like a lot of times, <laughs> like right, like and I'm somebody who's had to deal with multiple inferiority ideologies within myself, um, and so I've learned that what we think uh, inferiority feels like is not actually what it feels like. Right. Okay, so I'm, I'm right. going to talk more about that. Yes. Um. So like the other day, I was doing a talk with um these young women. It was mostly women. And I was like, if I asked you point blank, do you feel inferior? Almost all of you most likely would say no. Then I would ask you 20 follow-up questions. For example, are you wearing something that is physically uncomfortable because you feel that someone else might think it looks nice on you? Did you refuse to eat something today because you were worried that it would change your body size in a way that would create negative ramifications or, or negative social attitudes, right? Like, and we can go down the list, right? It's like, you're saying no, to the primary on the nose question, but I bet you're saying yes to every single follow-up question that I ask you. Yes. And so I think what's important is that even if you don't identify as someone who experiences inferiority, that sometimes we have to reverse engineer the, the realization that is a very painful one, that we actually do subscribe to our own inferiority. So Um, I think that's really important, like for a lot of women, just giving them the tools to recognize what inferiority 
actually is and what it looks like and what it feels like. Um, and so, you know, like, I think that, um, obviously these things manifest in, in a ton of different ways. Um, but essentially like diet culture is heavily reliant upon, like I was mentioning before, this inferiority ideology. Um, because essentially diet culture relies almost entirely on codependency, um, relies almost entirely on the idea that you will do things in order to receive the acceptance of others um, at, a, at a great cost to yourself sometimes. Um, and so uh, when we think about it, right, like, and, and let's talk a little bit more about, um, I've been thinking so much about this issue about inferiority um, because I'm newly single. I left my relationship of three years uh, about six weeks ago in the midst of like a lot of um, emotional upheaval and changes for me. And, you know, so I, and I'm ready. I've kind of been dating very, very lightly since then. Um, and it's been so interesting to me to kind of see how all these dating mechanisms um, kind of like, I mean, like I think about Tinder and, you know, like I'm on, um, coffee meets bagel, right? There are these like extremely uh, photo forward forms of experiencing attraction, which automatically tips in like, that's a masculine way of approaching the world, right? And there's so many things that are just considered neutral that are actually masculine oriented. And it's really fascinating. But like, I was writing, I was just writing an essay about some of this stuff. And one of the things that I stumbled upon was growing up, um, being taught that I was ugly and unappealing by boys who are my age um, and through their system of like emotional control, um, I learned that um, essentially I only exist through the realities of romantic and sexual desire as determined by men. Um, and I think the truth is a lot of women are living in that place, are living in the place where they see First of all, they see, like, men as their primary source of intimacy, meaning, and love. And then this, the sad, hard reality that men don't have any tools to fully humanize and experience women outside of the lenses of sexual desire. Um, so, I don't know. Like, I could go on this road for, like, a thousand hours. I'm just going <laughs> to stop there. <laughs> no, but I think it's so good because I've been giving a lot of a lot of thought to to this myself and and I think that it's it's really important to dissect it in this way because approaching not good enough before, you know, I was really approaching it through the lens of just your own your own image and your own beliefs and obviously, yeah. you know, drawing in how a lot of that comes from you know, from fat phobia as it relates to us relying on our appearance for our self-worth. But when we take that layer off and we realize, all right, I'm more than, you know, my body doesn't define who I am. It's yeah. the the inadequacy is still there. And every time I work with somebody yeah. and we uncover the layers underneath their body image, it always comes back to self-worth and it always comes back to yeah. feelings of inferiority are not good enough. And I, so I was flipping out over here when you mentioned those 20 questions to really uncover yeah. that and to recognize that. And then, you know, yeah. digging into that further, I've started to really piece together the the role of sexism in that. And especially as it relates to, you know, our our intelligence, our um and our our capacity for for, you know, speaking up and leading and all of these other things. And that, I mean, that's just what's been going on in my brain this past little while. So I, um, yes. yeah, <laughs> just really excited about yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, good. I'm glad. I'm excited to talk about it. Right. And I think like what's so interesting, uh, the other, another thing I was thinking about, um, is like, you know, it's so, it's like, right. Dieting is the evidence of women's the epidemic of female unhappiness like that it's right there it's like in our right like it's in our faces and we don't have the tools to see it and we're in denial and i'm like and it's it's been so interesting just like rec this like just talking about it it's been like we are like I, like sometimes in lectures when i like have the space to talk about this i'm like we are in the midst of one of, like we are in the midst 
of a like centuries old epidemic of female unhappiness. Dieting is one of the primary pieces of evidence um, that this that this epidemic is happening, right? And like, and the fact that women experience it as self elevating is like the sickest part of it, you know? Right. Um. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yes. But this, okay, so this also ties to something you wrote recently, which, which I was like, so excited about, because I've written about this as as well as it relates to dieting being a drug. And, um, and how, you know, when we say, when, pe- when people say I'm addicted to food, it's like, no, actually, you're addicted to dieting. And, right, it, right. and, and how I think that fuels this whole epidemic, because it gives us this false high and this mania that we're mm-hmm. that we're mm-hmm. that we're craving. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, yeah, I identify as somebody who was addicted to dieting. Um, and what's interesting, right? Dieting is a dissociate. It's a, it's a dissociative mechanism. Um, I mean, I actually learned this from a friend of mine who's a psychotherapist. She, her name is Deb Burgard. She's so great. And she works with people with eating disorders and like people who are dealing with fat phobia. And she's based in the Bay Area. Um, anyway, and she's done, she's done so much work over the past like de- two decades at least. Um, but, you know, she kind of taught me that women, uh, women desperately want to disassociate because, because misogyny is so stifling, right? Like the truth is, um, it's extraordinarily difficult to lift, to pull aside the veil on our culture and see how stultifying the culture really is for women, really. Um, and so women, I think on some intuitive spiritual level, recognize this, even if they can't consciously accept it, they recognize it on a visceral level. Um, and so they end up doing, you know, we end up doing all of this incredible emotional labor and all these Olympics in order to disassociate from an extraordinarily painful reality um, in the same way that anybody who is experiencing something extraordinarily difficult would, would have coping mechanisms. So dieting is this extraordinary, extraordinary soap opera. Every single calorie, every single bite, your entire life is caught up in that moment. It's like, it's, you know, I mean, every single, uh, um, you know, steps that we take is either working towards or against our weight loss or weight gain, right? Um, like, I just remember being in the throes of dieting and every single minute was a hyper drama. Yes. And we have to recognize that we become addicted to that hyper drama because it allows us to have escape. Um, and so, and, and I think like that, that goes to kind of what I was saying earlier about like the symbolic nature of dieting, I think like for me, when I think about dieting as a metaphorical behavior, I think about the ways in which like women are living out their entire lives on a plate, on an eight inch diameter planet, their entire life is being lived out on it, right? And I'm like, that is, that is such a like, that is such a metaphor to me. It's like, it is literally the constriction of human potential to the tiniest possible unit. Um, and so I think that like, you know, it, it, and it's, it's very scary for women when they're thinking about leaving dieting. Um, I think because it means they will have all of this space. Um, and I mean, like they will have the silence, they will have like the, you know, the capacity and like, what are they going to do with all that? And I think some women look at all that extra time as a gift and they're excited. I think many more women look at all that time, uh, maybe even subconsciously and are, are terrified actually. Absolutely. It leaves such a huge void. And I think that mm-hmm. especially when dieting was giving you that thrill, which in my in my circumstance, yes. it was and being as someone who's yeah. had different substance uh, abuse issues in my in my past, like, I replaced all of that with exercise and dieting addiction. And, and right. so to leave that behind, I was like, wow, this is like really boring, but that's life sometimes, you know, yes. it was just like to take that layer of, of the mania away from it. You come back yes. and, and you're like, and it, it it's almost disappointing and sad. And obviously there's kind of this mourning process that goes through it, but it's also about just getting comfortable with that's what being human is about. And, and it, and it is about living on this more mundane plane. 
Yeah. Oh my God. It's so interesting that you're saying that and specifically that you use the word boring. It's so interesting now that I've kind of been like cleaning out my, you know, my metaphorical closets. Um, one of the things that I've been dealing with is like, is this sense of like ennui and boredom and just recognizing that I'm like, oh my, and I'm like, I'm somebody who comes from a multi-generational addiction family. Um, and so like, for example, like sort, sort of like a little bit, uh, a little bit of a tangent, but I think it's really relevant to this topic and, and addiction. Um, so like one of the things that I had to recognize, so I grew up in a very emotionally volatile environment. Um, and so I think like, especially for people who have like grew up in, in sort of that kind of an environment or with an addiction framework, um, there is a huge behavioral compulsion to treat everything like a substance. And and I think that I was doing this with dieting and like, there's a lot of other reasons um, like, you know, in, in trying to come out of that chasing the high, everything is kind of a high um, thing. I found myself, you know, having to literally uh, talk myself through things. Like, for example, um, I remember a couple years ago, I was in Oregon uh, visiting my ex's family. Um, I wanted to go to Portland, so I rent a car. I ended up, you know, and then and then I'm driving back to the town in the dark, right? Like, it's like, I've never driven this road in the dark. Google takes me off the highway and onto a back road, like onto a country road. So it's like 10 p.m. It's super dark. Um, it's a back country road. There's no other cars. And as I'm leaving Portland, I see that I'm low on gas. Right. And I like, I basically, if I, I have just enough gas to get to his house and then for the, to turn the car off and then I'll have no gas. It was like literally just enough gas to get back. And in my mind, I was like, Oh no big deal. I'll just keep going. I'll just keep going. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. And so what ends up happening is I'm on this back road I'm panicking. I'm running out of gas. I'm like, I'm in a place I don't know. Right. And like some part of me is experiencing this as deeply unpleasant, but then I start to register the addictive part of me. That's like loving this. Right. So like, and then it's great. Like I'm like freaking out, freaking out. And then finally I come across a town. There's a little town, there's a gas station. And I'm like, Oh, thank God. My addict brain is like, keep driving. You don't need to get gas. Wow. <laughs> and I like, I literally have to like, like stop. I have to stop that side of my brain and talk myself through it. I'm like, Virgie, you need to turn left off of this road. You need to pull into this gas pump. You need to turn off the car. You need to roll down the window and hand your card to this man. And like, it, like I had to walk myself through like the same part of me that like the grown up part of me that just wants to be human and free. <laughs> like, right. was like, I had to talk to the sad little girl part of me that just wants to never have to be present. And wow. so I, so I so relate to that. I have so much compassion for that with people who are in the dieting cycle. Right. And I think, and this, this may be, too much for the conversation today. Uh, probably not. But I think that sometimes what can happen is we then seek that we seek that drama and validation through the through social media and the and the body positive movement on social media. So you know, yeah. we've, we've been in dieting, and we leave that and then we find this other world. And it gives us kind of that same that same high those little dopamine hits as it relates mm -hmm. to, you know, checking social media, checking Instagram. And and I'm 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 I've I believe I'm guilty of this. I, you know, I think that this was something that that in the beginning, like I was really hooked on that on that validation as I as I was coming out of being like this dieter into being someone who was promoting body image. But um, I, I think that that's something to be careful of as well, because it doesn't fix the underlying the underlying stuff and getting comfortable with with a little bit more of a less dramatic life, like st actually physically leaving the soap opera and being amongst the spaciousness and silence of everyday life. Yes. Oh my God. That's so deep. Yes. I mean, <laughs> I, I yes, I totally relate to that. I think like um, one of the things that always strikes me um, as we're doing this work of trying to move away from dieting um, is that the, a lot of times we'll, like people, we will move away from the behaviors of dieting, but we don't know how to leave behind the framework of yes. dieting. Yes. Um, and so we bring that same goal orientation, 
you know, like numbers, numbers, numbers totally. to our like liberation pursuit, which is so, it's like so hard, right? Like it's all a process. Or, I mean, in my mind, it's like, it's totally normal to, um, to do that. I just think it's important to kind of check in and be like, okay, I stopped doing this thing, but did I really let go of the framework? And is the framework actually working for me or is it creating more work and more suffering for me, you know? Right, exactly. And I think that's it's hard because we become more in touch with our emotions. We become, you know, we take off the veil of dieting. You know, you you start to get in touch with like all these feels that are underneath. And I think that often it doesn't feel better necessarily. You know, because right. you're getting in touch right. with these deeper levels of pain or sadness that that before you were distracting yourself with with dieting and i think that yes. you know it's not yes. all like rainbows and and fucking fairies when you when you feel comfortable right. in your body it's actually like you just have this way bigger range of emotions that you weren't in touch with before and it's about getting comfortable with that it's just navigating a new way of being but really that's the human way of being like that's how we were born into this world yes absolutely yeah cool oh my god i could go on forever with you <laughs> we'll have to do a part two in the future for sure um but as we wrap things up i want to make sure that you have time to talk about some of the stuff that you have coming up including your your program so do you want to do you want to talk about that for a bit yeah so i am i'm collaborating with um a new friend her name is krista niles she is a psychotherapist slash dating expert and we're collaborating doing um babe camp and her course which is called the curvy cupid course um so uh so that's how, like we're in the sort of the sales process of it now like we are um the sort of the kickoff is february 6th so it's like so for you sort of like the the thing is like you get a you get two courses it's a package deal one after the other babe camp my four week online course babe camp which is a primer in diet culture and how to break up with diet culture and accept your place in the babe pantheon and then immediately going into dating with intention with Krista um one of the things that's like really incredible to me about our collaboration is that um, it's been so, so, so Chris's background is that she, she works with, um, couples. And so she's seen kind of like the fallout of the way that we, the current cultural dating paradigm. Um, and I think that, that and it absolutely has informed how she does the work as a dating expert. Right. Um, so it was interesting because when I, when she told me about the work that she does and she, presented the idea of us working together, I thought, oh my God, that'd be great. A lot of my clients um, really want dieting, rather dating. <laughs> they want like dating help and they want romantic advice. And that's not like, like, and I kind of go in and start looking at her materials and I'm like, holy shit, I need dating I need a dating expert. Like, right. I mean, like it was incredible to me. So I just like want, I just kind of want to say like I was excited from the beginning to work with her, and then when I went into the materials, I was like my mind was blown. So I think like just to kind of give you an idea of like how excited I am about this duo course. So um, if you're interested in that, you can. I think you're going to have a link, right? Yes. Um. <laughs> yep. It'll be it'll so, yeah. be it'll be in the show notes at summerinandin.com forward slash seventy seven seven seven, which is the episode number for this episode. And Chris is going to be on the show next week too. Oh, perfect. That's great. Okay. Yes. So I'm really excited about that. Um, I'll probably be doing. Uh, I, I'm thinking about doing a retreat, some kind of like maybe day or a couple day intensive in the summer. We'll see what happens. But um, I'm going to be speaking at Purdue the first weekend of March, if anyone is in that area. Um, and I'm also going to be on tour for two weeks. March 1st through 15th, with the exception of the Purdue uh, event, um, I'll be going, um, I'll be starting in Arcata, Northern California, and then we have a number of um, engagements in Southern California. So I'll be doing, uh, I'll be doing some stuff down there between March 10th and 15th. And you can find out about that by going to my website and, go, and clicking on the calendar link. Um I have a TED Talk coming up. Um, it's still 
Uh, I think it's still kind of a secret, so <laughs> I'll put it on my Not anymore. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> we have, um, and the date is solidified and everything. Awesome. Yeah, coming up. Do, and are you, you're writing another book, right? You're writing, are you writing Lose, Hate, Not Wait? Yeah, I think that, oh, I don't know. Yes, I'm writing it. I think that the plan that I had um, for publication is not... I decided it's not going to work for me. So I think it's like, it's kind of interesting. Like I was so excited about the idea of doing a new work. And then I got kind of caught up in the like, actually, this is what I want. This is the vision I have. And I'm going to hold out until I have a publisher who's going to give me that. So it's kind of like yeah, an interesting good. like moment. Yeah. Yeah. Good. No, you should. I mean, it's, it's you, right? Like it's your, it's your work. It should be, it should be yes. the way you want it. I think freedom of creative expression is really important. Yes. So yeah, yeah. it's like, I think that I'm going to sit on the project a little bit longer, but I have incredible faith that it will manifest in the world soon enough. <laughs> Great. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it so, so much. Again, I'm so grateful for everything you do and for taking the time today. Um, we'll definitely have you back on again in the future. And um, and I'm excited about your course with Krista. It sounds amazing. Me too. Thank you so much. Rock on. How awesome was that conversation? I am still riled up about it. Remember, you can go to summerinandend.com forward slash 77 to get all of the links mentioned in this episode. Thank you for being with me today. I will see you next time. Rock on. Rock on.